That's the problem with being human, isn't it? The problem with being human is that we have unmet longings of the soul. We're always after more. And don't we know it? We're always looking for something new. Um, We're always longing for something that will satisfy. And we're always giving our hearts away to the loving of stuff. And I just want to camp there just for a second. I just try and set a few grenades off here and there because so often when we are always looking for something new, we'll go to anything. When we're always longing for something to satisfy, we'll go to the wrong places. And if we're always giving our heart away to love stuff, then we are going to be terminally disappointed, aren't we? We really are if we're looking for the wrong things. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the longer I live in this world the more clearly I see that nothing in this world will truly satisfy. Therefore, I must conclude that I'm made for something beyond this world. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel that. And so do you. We feel it quite acutely, don't we? That nothing seems to satisfy. It's as if, well, we have an echo of a distant world, once known, once inhabited, written into our hearts, but it is now lost to us forever. And we sense that we ache to return to it. For nothing in this world actually hits the spot. And so this is the part of God's holy book, the Bible, his holy scripture to go to, to tell us something. But as we come to this bit of the Bible, we're finding actually that it's accusing us. It's accusing us and saying, I know you've got longings, but you don't long and desire deeply enough. If only you knew. Uh, me, Joe, and Bethany were away on a little conference for training of trainees this week, and we were looking at John chapter 4, and for those of you who know your Bible, you know there's the story of this woman who was at the well, uh, whose life was quite barren, and she'd been trying to fit, uh, quench her thirst for life and meaning and purpose and joy and worship in the accumulation of, of, of relationships. And each fellow she came along to, she thought, maybe this is the one, but we don't know whether it was a problem on her part or that they were just obnoxious or that they were cruel to her or it was just a terrible state of affairs. She was left bumped and bruised, still thirsty in the soul until the Lord Jesus came and met her. And there was this strange conversation that goes on, but the place where it starts is she offers him a drink, which was very unheard of in those days. You wouldn't offer a strange fellow a drink. You'd almost sound as if you were trying to solicit some business or something like that. It was a very odd phrase to, to ask in those days. But Jesus, with the way that only Jesus could, he looked at her and said, Woman, if you knew who it is who's speaking to you, and if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me for eternal life. And you would have a spring well up inside you to eternal life. You see, her problem was that she was searching, but that when she met the thing that she should have been searching for, she just didn't have a strong enough desire. And to a degree, that's us, isn't it? That's why we get so weighed down by the things that are going on. And so here we're being told, and in the scriptures as a whole, we're being told, long for, because you will long for something, long for this, look for this, love this. Don't love anything so much now that you wouldn't want Jesus Christ to bring his heavenly glory and return in this second I'll say that in just a slightly different way. Don't love anything more than the possibility of the return of the king today and him coming and getting, taking us out of this dump. 
But some of you are sitting there and going, I'd like Jesus to come back, but could it be after the lunch that my fellow has booked me in for? Can we just go out for lunch first and sit with my kids? Can we do that? And then, Jesus, could you please come back? And I suppose what we need to say is, what are we thinking? What we do is we build little things in our life here and now as if they were really going to satisfy. So it's a great thing to go with your family for lunch. It's a great thing, great thing to feel appreciated. But can I tell you that if he comes back, it's called the great banquet, not a banquet down at the Carvery, the great banquets. And if you're like, oh, please, Lord Jesus, don't come back till after then because I'd really like to go to this thing. You're like Poppy, who's out sitting, my little baby Poppy, who's out sitting in the garden eating dirt, and when we pick her up and take her for a banquet at Buckingham Palace, she cries. Duh, Poppy, have you got any idea? Anything you love here and now is like a dump compared to what heaven will be like. You see, at the city dump, what happens is things corrode, slip away, break down, and end up as nothing. But in the heavenly city, everything is freshly and newly restored. So today I just want to show you what the Lord is showing us that we might love more than anything else, and actually crave for and long for the day when he comes and gives this to us. Now remember, it's picture language. Revelation is picture language. So this isn't what it looks like, this is what it is like. It takes physical pictures of stuff that we can connect to, to speak of greater and deeper realities. And we saw that last week, didn't we, for those of us who were here? We saw that our dwelling with God in heaven is almost pictured as a physical city. Now, it's got lots of physical measurements and sizes and scales, but you couldn't draw it, it defied being drawn... Because this picture of a physical city, all the truths of the physical city were being imposed upon God's people, his bride. So when we look at this, don't think, I'm about to see the architecture of heaven. No, don't think that. Think, I'm about to find out what heaven is like to dwell in. This is the experience of heaven, rather than the architectural plans of heaven. Do we see? Okay. So I'm going to read through it again. And then, this is going to give some of you the price. I've got eight points. Now, usually each point takes me 15 minutes, but I've been really disciplined and split them down. If I don't get through all eight of them, you can relax. Okay? We, we, we won't be here forever because I realise that it's Mother's Day. Now. Okay, so let's read the text through again, and then I'm going to see eight points. And all of the eight points are know something or other because it gets replaced with something or other. Okay? So even as you're reading, know this because there's going to be that. Know that, because there's going to be this. And as I read through the whole text, see whether you can spot some of the things you think I might mention in my eight points, okay? Number one. uh, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of 
the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So let's have a look at six, uh, sorry, eight of these points. We'll try and rattle through and we'll see how we get through. Okay, the first thing that we notice, verse 22 of chapter 21 is, well, I'll, I'll summarize this point, is there's no temple that he is present, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, every city that you go to has some sort of place that is set aside as sacred. Virtually every city in the ancient world would have had a temple of some sort. It's a place where you go to, where the idea is that heaven and earth touch and collide. You can touch the divine. A temple was a place or a reminder of what the world would be like if God was in it forever. And that's why people would flock to temples. So whichever religion you came from, there would be a flocking to these places that you can somehow and some way connect to the divine. But the temple was as, as a, as a, an especially special place, especially special, you get the idea, if you were a Jewish person, because there, there were, in, the, in the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, which interestingly was a cube. It was the place that it was viewed that God dwelt in a special way. And, in that, and when you came near that, you got a sense of harmony of the world with God at the center. I suppose this, uh, the idea of a temple reminds us of a few things, doesn't it? It reminds us, first of all, that we haven't got that at the moment, have we? To see a temple and to be drawn towards a temple was to be made aware of the fact that you weren't as close to God as you sensed you were made to be. That there was in some sense some sort of barrier. A temple implies the need for a bridge or like an embassy of the divine amongst the earthly that is cut off. And the temple is a huge reminder of our inability to connect to God and to gain access to him. And we sense that every day because we just find it so easy for him to drop off our radar. Can I tell you when you are in the unadulterated, untinkered with, presence with God, you know it, and you don't forget who he is. But in this scene, there isn't a temple. Because the whole place is like the Holy of Holies. That's no more. We are to be permanently in the unshielded presence of God. Now, can I tell you, this is so concrete, because as you sit there and you listen, you're like, I get the idea, but what would it actually look like? So every week I have to try to come up with a way to, to give you just a taste and a hint of it. Okay, how, how, how do I want you to try and relate to it this week? This is my best stab, okay. Um, you're, you are finite. You are limited in every way. So there is a limit to how much sleep you can have. I know you don't think it is, those of you who are tired, but there is. There is a limit to how much food you can enjoy. Have you noticed that you eat so much amount of food and then suddenly you stop enjoying it? 
And, I mean, at Christmas Day, the, you know, we, we eat ourselves into oblivion to the point where we can't even lift up the remote control to change the channel. There is a limit to how much we can enjoy our food. There is a limit to how much we can dance. For those of you who went out last night and had a party, you danced and then to a point where your feet wouldn't let you do it anymore, and there's a limit. There's a limit to every good experience, whether it's playing, whether it's running, whether it's dancing, whether it's eating, whatever it is, there's a limit, because you are limited. Can you imagine what it will be like to be in the presence of the one who is limitless? And you are made over like him, so to a degree you share in his infinity. Me and Jane were talking earlier, she's convinced that the Lord Jesus, when he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place and give you a mansion, it was going to be a chocolate one. But as part of that discussion, we realised that Jane could only eat so much chocolate. We reckoned it was about three full-size slabs of galaxy a day was the best she could take. In heaven, you'll be able to just have it mainlined into your arteries, and you'll be loving it more every day than you did the day before. Now, this is a silly illustration, but to a point you see, to be in the presence of God, wow! If you want to long for something that week, oh, I long for the kids' rooms to be tidy, oh, I long for a bit of peace, I long for my nose to stop running with this cold, long for that. Say to that lot, I long to be in the presence of God. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. First one was no temple because he is present. Second of all, no artificial light, but he is glorious. Verse 23, and then verse 5 coming up. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Verse 5, therefore there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Can I tell you, this is a summary of the whole Bible storyline arc narrative thing. This is where it begins. God's people dwelling under the closeness of relationship and under the light of the Lord. And the plan was always that the nations would walk in his light. But of course sin and our rebellion against God got in the way of that. So the plan was an international community from every nation, tribe and tongue who walked in the light of God, who could be described as those who know God, and it lights them up. And I don't want you to think that this is a tag-on to life, because you were made to be a person who walked in the light of the Lord. But of course, in our sin, we've loved darkness. And so we've been brought away from the light. And then the Lord Jesus comes into the world... And we're told he is the light of the world. He is the one who illuminates us as we were supposed to be illuminated. These verses don't tell us that in the new creation there isn't going to be a sun or a moon. It doesn't tell us the orbits of the stars. What it tells us is there won't be need of them. Because where God is, he's just, he illuminates everything. So the sun is an artificial light. Because, I mean, you think about your little torch, you think, ah, oh, artificial light. No, no. The sun is an artificial light because it was created by God to tell us something of what he's like. And when you're there, you get the real deal. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, the church, God's own people, as we wait for that ultimate fulfillment, are described as a city on a hill, a light. We're supposed to be something of this, shining the light of God, his grace, his character, what it means to know him, 
and bringing light to a dark world while we wait for that day when the light of the Lord will explode onto the scene to the point where that huge ball of gas that seems to have so much power will look like a little candle in the wind. See, at that time, there will be no artificial light, but he is glorious. What about the next one, third one? Uh, No night, for he is our stronghold. Let's read verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Or verse 5, following on. There will be no more night. Why? Why don't you go out at night time? Come on, be honest. Because people like Nathan are legging it around, aren't they? Little hooligans. Why don't seniors go out at night? Answer? Go on, go on Ron. You're not allowed out. Ron's not allowed out because he, he won't be a danger to himself. He could be a danger to the hooligans. Okay? The scallies run with fear when Ron is around. But aside from Ron, the reason that some people won't go out at night is because it's not safe. If you were an ancient city with big walls around you, you know, nobody dropped bombs from a helicopter back then. If your city was going to be overrun, it came by people with spears or horses. So you had big city walls and whopping great gates. And at what time did you close the gates? Night time. To keep the threat, the danger, out. Those massive ancient gates were locked to avoid the danger. But here we're being told that when you are part of this new community and the new heavens and the new earth, every threat will be gone because God is our stronghold. He will be the one who secures us. So there will be no more stabbings or muggings. There will be no late night parties that dehumanise people and are just unclean and ugly. There will be no surprise attacks. There will be no enemies. Now, just camp there for a second. No enemies for you to fear. Nobody to come against you. Can you imagine a version of you where you are fearless? I'm not talking about being some sort of Hollywood hero, fearless, because even they've got fear. I'm talking about not ever worrying about anything. Everything that you hold precious cannot be touched. Fearless. Totally and utterly safe. Why? How? Through your own might? No. Through the Lord. He is the one in the city who makes it safe. Which of course leaves us a little bit of a question. Uh, Why does he leave the gates wide open? Maybe that's just to show off his muscles. I can make it safe without even shutting the gates there, baby. Easy. Or maybe it's just the interesting thing about this city that, have you noticed, nobody leaves. People come in and there's access, but nobody leaves. I wonder whether you can imagine how much of a comfort this would be to those first century believers who first heard this message. Do you remember there were enemies all around them? There was a Roman Empire that wanted to stamp them out. There were people... Uh, who would persecute them just because they named the name of Jesus. There was ideologies and philosophies and idolatries all around that just laughed at them and said, you are nothing, you are small, we can crush you any time we like. And then they hear this news that, that Jesus is going to give them a home where they are totally secure, where there will be no more night. They've been victimized, but one day they were going to be reigning. 
I suppose one question I could ask at this stage is, have you come in? It's worth checking that, isn't it? It's worth making sure that the access that God is offering to people, you have received. Because if you have, you'll know it because you don't want to leave. You won't want to leave. If you know you are part of what God is doing here, you won't want to leave. Fourthly, here we go, we're doing okay on time. Fourthly, uh, no impurity, for he has cleansed. Can you see that there in verse 27? Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now can I tell you that it sounds too good, good to be true? Some of you are even thinking that. It sounds too good to be true. I don't remember going anywhere where somebody or something or something, uh, some goings on didn't ruin it. Everything always goes south. Not here. People who don't want God won't be there. It won't be because they weren't offered a chance. Everybody has this invite. Come and be part of this new community. The invite is extended abroad to all, but only those who want God, only those who thirst deep within them will say, yes please, can I come in? Can I be part of it? Everyone is invited through Jesus to be cleansed in his blood so that he will clean our record of our wrong against God and he will clean our hearts. The process he begins now and completes on that great day, he cleanses us so that the only thing that we want to do in our lives is joyfully, willingly have him as the fulfilment of our desires, longings and hopes. Can you long for that day when it won't be a chore sometimes to obey God? Can I tell you some, the reason that it's a chore sometimes to obey God is not because he's not asking us to do something that's not life-giving. It's because we're stupid and we think we know best. It's unbelief. But on that day, all of that will have gone. Heaven will be this place for only the people who willingly, joyfully want Jesus and want to be with him. People who've been saved and cleansed and redeemed and rescued. So what does that tell us for today? It tells us that when we do church, don't be surprised if people get bored if they're not that interested in Jesus. One of the things I have to do as a church leader is be really careful that I don't pitch my Bible message at the level of people who merely want to attend. Pitch your Bible message, pitch your truth from the scripture, just about enough to keep people interested who aren't really interested in Jesus that much. Do you see? Have you noticed there's a temptation to do that? But really what we're saying is we want our gatherings as a church to be so rich that the agenda that drives it is a passion and a love for Jesus. So much so, if people haven't got a passion and a love for Jesus, when they come and see what we're doing, and come and listen to the the messages that get preached, they get bored and don't want to come anymore, or they get saved. Do you see what we're aiming at here? Because in in that heaven, there won't be anything impure, there won't be anything that echoes what Satan is like, which is deceitfulness or shamefulness. There will simply be a purity of focus and love for the living God and all that he has done for uh, for us and in us. Do you see that? So we as a church family are always going to be raising the bar to that. We're always going to be fighting off sin. We're going to be brave enough, one with another, in a spirit of grace and mercy, but love for the Lord that says, our chief agenda in our church family as we wait for that great day is to be what we're going to be. 
It's to encourage one another. Let's put off that selfish attitude. Let's get rid of those sinful desires. Let's encourage one another towards the Lord Jesus because we want to be known above all else as those who are lovers of God from a pure heart. For on that day, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And by the way, this is a promise. Verse 27. Nothing impure will enter it. That some of you, uh, I need to just say, some of you have, have even asked me this. What if I go to heaven and I ruin it for everybody else? Is there a chance that the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve turning away from God could happen and it will be me who does it? Will I be the devil? Can I wreck God's eternal plan to bring bliss into people's life? Are we going to have to go around this merry-go-round all over again? Answer, no. There is no second fall. Jesus has cleansed and it can't go wrong again. It will not people won't perish. And some of you are like, well Lord, I know I have this wonderful ability to go into a place and just wreck stuff. Are you going to stop me at the gates? No. Because I will have cleansed you, made you new, and no evil thing will befall what I have intended. Number five. I want to speed up. Number five. Uh, There will be no drought, for he pours out living water. Look at verse one of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now this is an Old Testament picture. It comes out of the book of Joel. It comes out of Ezekiel 47 and 48 where there's this river that is flowing out of the temple and everything it touches that is parched, barren and as good as dead snaps back into life on a different level beyond what it was before. A river flowing. Now we feel a spiritual drought, don't we? Have you noticed how it just seems to seep out of us? I'm surprised we have to, you know, we have to wait more than a few days to meet one with another and we're like, I've just lost me, me focus on the Lord and I just, I feel like I, my eternal life is ebbing away. It isn't through Jesus Christ, but we sense that, don't we? But here is the fulfilment of what Jesus promised. The Garden of Eden reopened but cranked up on steroids. Even better, overflowing, abundance, soul delight, Life eternal, and it's not meagre. Oh, please don't ever think that the Lord is meagre in his grace and his provision. He's not. What is the source? The source of this, it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now you cannot, though you've tried, find, create, manipulate this kind of life in your life. It's what the advertisement uh, agencies try to persuade you, you will find if you buy those products. It's what the magazines tell us the celebrities are living. It's what you get apparently when you reach the top of your game as a sports person or in business. But can I tell you, if that is the best of life, it's nothing on this. This is overflowing abundance. And its source is not something you've manipulated or created or given yourself. The only person who can provide this is God. And look at that word. I've just been dwelling on that word there in the middle of verse 22 flowing. What do you picture in your mind when it says flowing? I picture last year when we were on our holidays and they had one of these big rain thingies and the uh, over in Spain when it rains they don't have drains so suddenly it all piles into these sort of 
big things called ramblers. They're like empty riverbeds, and they're about 30, 40, 50 foot wide, about 20 foot deep, and there's like this little trickle of grubby water down them for 99.9% of the time. And suddenly, when it rains, all the water comes off the hills, no drains for it to go into, and they pile in, and suddenly, from about 3, 4, 5, 6 hours rain, this thing, 40, 50 foot wide, and 20 foot deep, is gushing. It's flowing. It flowed the bridge, not the bridge down. So, yeah, I could tell you the stories of how my kids nearly died, but that's another day. Flowing. How dare you ever caricature God as stingy and meagre. That's just not his style. Perhaps you've had parents who were like that who you sense were always holding something back from you for shady reasons. Perhaps you viewed it with God that, you know, I, I, only if I screw myself up into this shape will he be generous in abundance with me. No. It's his instinct to be generous. He can't help himself. So this, right in the centre of this city image here, right out the centre, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It was accessible. It was generous. The only person who is stingy in this room is you and me. We're stingy every time we deny ourselves life because we try to find life abundant anywhere else. But no more on that day because God will be flowing eternal life into us. He pours it out. Number six, there will be no more death for he has healed the nations. No more death. You can see that there in verse, hold on, Verse 3. No longer, oh sorry, hold on, verse 2, sorry. Down the middle of the, uh, the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now this looks rather weird because you've got this big street that's paved with gold, but down the middle of the street is like this river thing, and then on either side of the river is the tree of life. So I don't know how they built the tree. I don't know where the tree went under. But the whole point is you're not supposed to be able to draw it, are you? The point is it's all there. But when we think tree of life, what part of the Bible are we supposed to think? Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden that we were cut off from. But here we get a picture of Eden restored. And this tree of life, I love this phrase they've got. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Here's this thing right at the centre of the dwelling of people. You have to sort of, when you come in the city, you have to wade up towards the tree, wade up through the flowing waters of eternal life, get totally cleansed, and you sort of enter the city, and you're just getting drenched in life. And then suddenly you just hate the idea of being drenched in water. This is water you get getting drenched in life, and then you're coming up and you, you touch these leave things and they just touch you and you sort of sparkle. You're healed. In some sense, what we're being told here is that stuff gets put right there. There's no death. There's easy access. It's bountiful and fruitful. How often do fruit trees harvest and produce their fruit usually? A couple of times a year maximum. Maybe three. Every month. Right on the nail. I will like fruit. It's going to have to be pretty awesome for that to be achieved, but if he says it, I believe it, and that settles it. I will like fruit. There will be no death, 
that he has healed the nations. And there's this picture of community, as it was supposed to be. Diversity. There will be people from all backgrounds, and people will be glad together, and they won't be angling for positions of power. They won't be looking down on other people. The nations will be healed and touched, and it will be beautiful. Number seven. There will be no curse, for he has blessed, for he blesses all at the beginning of verse 3 there, no longer will there be any curse. Now, curse speaks of the world gone wrong, and don't we know it? Back at the start of humanity, curses comes when we try taking the crown off God's head and putting it on ours. And he judicially acts against us, but also we get the consequences of our own foolishness. There's like a, a, a reaping and sowing principle. What you sow, you reap. You act against the Lord of life, You act against the one whose intention and actions are only ever to bless. You act against him and crack out on your own, you're going to get cursed. That's just the way the universe is wired. And so back in Genesis chapter 3, everything from childbirth through to farming is ruined. The universe is running down. There is decay. There is corruption. Things are falling apart. That is curse. And sometimes we invite curse into our life by the choices that we make. We make choices that are not in keeping with the king being the king, and then they get really surprised when stuff doesn't work. That's curse. And don't you ache for a day of liberation, where there is no more death, and there is no more funerals, there is no more curse, there is no more strokes, there are no more bombs and missiles, there is no more abuse, there is no more rape, there is no more gossip, there is no more bullying, there is no more diabetes, cancer, there is no sorrow or grief, Because we have been liberated. So all that gets said here is, there will be no longer, sorry, no longer will there be any curse. All the marks of Satan's plans to destroy God's ability to be gracious to the likes of you and me, every last mark of it, gone. And of course we need to ask how that is. How is it? How is it I get no more curse? How is it I get the tree of life? How is it that I get my thirst quenched? And the answer for those of us who know our Bibles is that Christ carries the curse for us. Think about all these things that we've got here that we get access to, or the opposites of them. So before, we were excluded. We could only come near to God because of Well, at best, through a temple, but we knew that was never going to be sufficient. We couldn't have the presence of God. We were in outer darkness. And Christ says, I will go there so you can have the presence of God. I will go to that cross. I will be cursed for you. I will be put outside, away, so you can have the presence. I will be put into darkness so you can have his glorious light. I will be taken into the night and be put in harm's way so you can be brought in safe and secure. I will be described as unclean. I will be looked upon and spat upon so that you can have all your impurities removed. I will thirst, and he did, didn't he, on the cross. I will thirst so you can have abundance of life. I will face death so that you can be healed. I will hang on a tree. I will go up the tree of death so you can have free access to the tree of life. That's how this is open to us. 
through Jesus. This is salvation. This is at work in us now, if we're believers now, and will be fulfilled on that great day when he comes in. What do you desire? Long for that completion. And the eighth one, as I finish with this very quickly, is there will be no alienation, for he has claimed his own. Verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. You know you're going to get a name. You know what a name is? Well, name tags have to go into all our kids' clothes at the beginning of term. It's a horrible few days because Jane has uh, this sort of dilemma that she faces. Of the 150 or so labels that she has to sew in, uh, how many should she get the girls to do? So teach them to sew. Is it quicker, and this is the thing, is it quicker to teach them to do it, though they'll moan, complain, jab themselves with a, um, a needle, sew the wrong name into the wrong thing, and do it on purpose so they don't ask it to get it again, or does she just get on and do the 150 yourself? I don't know. If you've got any advice, see you later. But there's a good reason. Buy a, a pen. Buy a pen? And you thought of that? Buy a pen, woman. Right, okay. That don't wash out except after five washes. Yeah. Not that we've tried. But uh, here we're told they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Why does Jane stick na- names in the jumpers, in the socks? In the, do you put them in the knickers as well? Not in the knickers. They're a mark of ownership, of belonging. It says Bethany Casey, therefore it belongs to Bethany Casey. We're being told that God has written his name on us because he wants us and we're owned by him. This is who we are now. How many people do you know who just don't know who they are? Perhaps they do things to try to create a name or an identity. Perhaps they're trying to make themselves wantable or make themselves named. And sometimes we even slip into doing that, don't we? And it's exhausting, isn't it? I will make a name. I will create an identity. And here we're being told that God has claimed us. We will no longer have to be working for a name. We will no longer have to discover ourselves. Because Christ has bought us. We were bought at a price. And we now belong to him. He loves us so much that he proudly puts his name on you and me. Would anybody else take a risk on you like that? Maybe they wouldn't. But through Christ, God has put a name on his people and said, I want you to be identified with me. So as I finish, there'll be something there of those eight things that stood out for you and the Lord said, today you need to take and grip a hold of that. And what I would like you to do, very simply, is say, Lord, this week... Lord, this week I'm going to be longing for all kinds of things because that's the way I'm wired. And my sinful nature gets a hold of that. I suspect it could be this thing that I'm facing. I suspect it could be that. Or I've got this difficult conversation to have. Or I'm going to be worried about that. Or I'm going to have this blessing and I'm going to try and live in it more than you would have me live in it. But what you have shown me about this thing in the future, please, Lord... 
now, I want that to be the longing of my heart. So in that moment when I'm tempted to long for stuff here, would you, Lord, drive me, push me, lead me to something that is lasting? Lead me to what Christ has won for me. So as you're quiet, we're going to use that. So just, we're going to take one minute now, think about which bit has stood out for you. Think of which you want your heart's longings and desires to camp on, what you want to love more than anything else in this world. Think about the threats, think of the things you're going to face this week. Say, Lord, in those moments when I face them, I want this to be the hope of my heart. Let's all take a moment to pray quietly, and then I'll finish with a prayer in a second before we sing.